Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John. That one. G'day and welcome to the show without a name. Um, I'm Alex Cameron. Dougal, as you guys may know, is in China. Um, so I'm going to be manning the fort until he puts something together and gets off his ass and does something. So today we've got a very special guest. We have uh, the author of the book Make the Liberal Party Great Again. Um, that's it there. I've read it. Uh, and we want to hear more about it. So on the show today, we have mortgage specialist, entrepreneur, and author, uh, Johnny Ruddick. How are you going, Johnny? I'm terrific, Alexander. Thank you very much for having me. No, no worries at all. No worries at all. Uh, look, honestly, this is, uh, I guess, the talk of the town at the moment. Good to hear. Um, I mean, every man and his dog has an opinion on the Liberal Party and leadership. Mm. Um, why don't you give us kind of, if you can, uh, uh, the rationale behind the book, the okay. reasoning, is there come some kind of deeper, kind of almost call to arms? Um, well, the guts of the book is that we're saying that uh, every member of the Liberal Party in Australia, so that's people who have paid an annual membership fee, which I'm guessing there would be at the moment about fifty to 60,000 people, uh, would ha have a national convention once every three years to elect our federal parliamentary leader. And the states and the territories would, would have their own state convention to elect their uh, state parliamentary leaders. So this, so what we saw in Canberra a month or two ago when uh, Malcolm Turnbull was replaced by Scott Morrison, that was a, 83 people met in a secretive closed room and they voted for who our Prime Minister is going to be. Now, about a third of the people who were participating in that vote immediately after the vote were going to be promoted to the ministry. Right. So there was, it's a wide open invitation for people to say, okay, well, I think uh, at the, the candidate, which we'll call A, is the best, but if I vote for B, B said that they would make me the defence minister. So therefore, I will vote for B. Now, if I suspect that we would have 300,000 members of the Liberal Party across Australia, if they knew that they could pay their membership fee and they would get a vote. Yeah. Now, if you've got 300,000 people voting, they can't be bribed. You can bribe enough people in a room of 83 people, but sure. you can't bribe 300,000 people. Now, this does seem radical to Australians, but this type of process is now standard operating procedure in the countries which are most similar to Australia, places like Britain and Canada. And even our own Australian Labor Party has partially brought this in. When Bill Shorten contested the leadership event against Anthony Albanese. The party room had 50% of the say, but the party membership, which was about 38,000 people, they all got a ballot as well. Now, that was a good start. I think we've got a much better model outlined in the book than what the ALP has done, but at least the ALP is on track for this to embrace this type of reform. Okay, so um, I guess... What, what kind of the crux of it is, is there kind of an inherent conflict of interest. Yes. Um, so although kind of everyday Australians will vote Liberal, um, they don't actually, really, they're not really getting a say on who's um, who's going to be leading the party, nor pre-selection, which I guess if you take it back to the kind of the genesis of, of the problem is that candidates mm. at uh, the federal level, as well as I believe the state level, mm -hmm. uh, being push forward on the basis not of credentials or kind of appeal to the wider voter base, but more to uh, allegiance and loyalty to a, a few select individuals. 
Well, <clears throat> the way that the current uh, the, the, the party currently selects its lower house members is, well, in New South Wales, it's a pre-selection. So that means, let's say we recently had one in Wentworth where we're sitting right now, the federal seat of Wentworth, when Malcolm retired. So there's about a 1,000 people who are paid-up members of the Liberal Party who live in the federal seat of Wentworth, and they all belong to various branches, the Bellevue Hill branch or the Vaucluse branch or the Rose Bay branch. So all those branches met a week or two prior to the pre-selection, and they all voted for about 10% of their branch to have a say in the pre-selection. So it's a very small group of people. It should be what would make a, a pre-selection a plebiscite is if every person who's a member of the Liberal Party and lives in Wentworth, they would all get a vote. That would be called a plebiscite. And that is clearly a better system. Yeah. But even better, and what we argue for in the book, is that we should have primaries. United States-style primaries, sure. which is where you don't even have to be a member of the party. That means we'd have, in a seat like Wentworth, we'd have ten to 20,000 people would say, yes, I care about who the Liberal candidate's going to be. Those Liberal candidates would have been campaigning across Wentworth, say, look, vote for me in the Liberal Party primary because I'm the best, because I believe in A, B and C. Sure. And someone else say, no, don't vote for him, vote for me because I believe in a, X, Y and Z. Almost like a, a kind of Darwinian-style survival of the fittest on kind of policy and objectives rather than... Well, yes, it would be fought. The, the, the contest would be won over a combination of their policy positions and their personal popularity. Sure. Personal popularity is always going to have a role to play in politics. So it's better to be principled rather than popular, but it's better still to be both. Sure, sure, sure. Um, what I also noticed in the book is um you kind of what's happened over the past several years i guess across both parties but uh, we're talking about the liberal party today Mm -hmm. and the idea of leadership spills um being quite frequent i mean you often hear people in the media say well i've got a five-year-old and he's seen x amount of prime ministers and you know they Mm -hmm. throw their hands up in the air and they think they're Mm -hmm. it's a smart comment like it's an educated comment but Mm -hmm. what i also gather from the book is that Kind of leadership spills uh, are a symptom of the disease, um, and not only are they uncommon, but they're uh, they've happened historically quite frequently as well. There was going to be a large appendix in this book, which yeah. briefly looked at all of the party room wars on the non-labor side of politics sure. since Federation in 1901, but that appendix very quickly became its own book. Right. Which will hopefully, yeah, it's largely written. Uh, but we'll see how this first one goes. But that looks at the extreme bitterness and dysfunction which has been going on for well over 100 years. And it's a result of not of the personalities involved, it's a result of the process which, which has not changed in over 100 years. So um, <clears throat> what is happening now in the age of social media is that these party room wars are becoming more frequent. I don't think they're getting any more bitter because they've always been maximum bitter. Yeah. Uh, John Gorton was the Prime Minister of Australia from, I think, 1968 to 1971. And there was, for most of the time he was the leader, he was being undermined and leaks against him from his cabinet. And it all came to a head. And... um, There was a tied vote. No one knew what to do. So Gordon said, threw his hands up. He says, okay, well, I'll resign. But then the bitterness continued. Now, 
30 years later, when John Gorton died at the state funeral at, uh, in the city in, in Sydney here, um, Tom Hughes, who was a major cabinet minister at the time, got up and gave the eulogy. And 30 years after the event, he attacked at a funeral, a state funeral, with all the prime ministers, all the press there and everything. He attacked uh, Malcolm Fraser <laughs> in quite a bitter, bitter manner. <laughs> Uh, so this was, um, I, I bring up that story only because I show you, look, the, the bitterness is... It's a symptom of the disease. That's right. But what's happened, the reason it's getting more frequent now is because the system is totally broken and it's like an old car that keeps getting repaired but keeps breaking down. Right. And keeps breaking down more frequently. Right. Right. And I guess as well, there's more publicity considering with social media. Um, everyone can has, have a say, I guess. That's um, right. Look, we often hear about uh, factional power broking. Um, that gets thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but I feel like people don't really, in general, don't really understand the actual mechanics of how that works. Okay. Um, do you want to go through and explain, if you can, yes. kind of the way in which someone who's operating and putting people in seats or for pre-selection actually does it? Okay, well, look, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party are two very, very strong brands. So there are millions of people out there who their whole life, from the age of 18 to 88, will vote for the Liberal Party candidate. We recently saw in Wagga a wipeout for the Liberal Party, but you still had one in four people vote Liberal. Okay, and that campaign was beset with problems, and the candidate, the Liberal candidate who just retired or resigned, was resigning in disgrace. But you still had one in four people said, yeah. "I'll vote Liberal anyway." Yeah. So it's a very powerful brand. So what the what these factions, factional bosses have have worked out through the very old party rules that we currently have under our party constitution, where a very small group of people can say who's going to be in the parliament. So what they do is they spend their whole life orchestrating who those very small group of people will be. They're not, they, they want to appoint, to, they want to make them delegates to pre-selections. Now, what they want to do is they want to get people who are loyal. What's it, can you explain uh, what a delegate is? Well, a delegate, so nine out of ten party members will never be a delegate. Right. One out of ten are. They're usually the activists. And they're the ones that have a, a real say about who our candidates for parliament will be. So to gain control of this very powerful brand, the Liberal Party, you just need to work hard on party affairs to make sure that people who are loyal to you are the delegates right. and therefore, therefore choose who goes into Parliament. So it's a very undemocratic system and that's what we're trying to change. Okay, so the delegates control the pre-selection? Yes. Is that what happens? You're a delegate from a branch to a pre-selection. Okay. Right. But look, these rules have recently been changed in New South Wales so that we, after the next state and federal election, will now, now be having plebiscites, which means everybody will get to vote. So it was a small step forward, but it was also a significant step forward. Right. right. Um, I guess what we've seen, um, the reason, what, what do you think are the reasons for kind of the power behind the brand? What is the, the pull, the traditional pull of the Liberal Party? Like what are the values that people, I guess, identify with, mm -hmm. um, and do you, how much damage do you think has been done to the perception of the brand as a consequence of kind of the deterioration of, of the party 
particularly at the leadership level? Well, look, the when the Republican Party was founded in the United States in the 1850s, it was founded on one issue, which was anti-slavery. And the equivalent for the Liberal Party, when Robert Menzies formed it in the 1940s, was a robust support for free enterprise. Now, people, particularly on the left, like to sort of uh, downplay how serious the communist threat in this country was. But in the late 1940s, there were so many strikes in this country and there was serious discussion because the Communist Party was becoming so strong. There was serious discussion between the Liberal Party and the Labor Party merging to become an anti-communist front. Is that right? That is true. The federal president of the Liberal Party publicly said this is what we need to consider. Menzies wasn't in favour of it, but they said that we, the communists are becoming so strong. Now, the, Liberal, the Labor government under Ben Chifley did take them on. And so they, they fought, you know, there was a lot of bitter wars on the left in this country over the communist issue. Sure. And then, well, then, then what happened was, is that was in the, look, I, I think a lot of people were still quite idealistic about communism in the 1940s. But by, um, <clears throat> by the 1950s, particularly after the Soviet uh, crushing of the Hungarian uprising, a lot of Western lefties who were pro-communist uh, walked away from communism. But the ones that stood with communism, even after they saw all the atrocities of communism, well, they're the real baddies. Right. And do you feel as if, is there any influence, um, I guess, from the real hard left today that do we is there any remnants of that still around oh well these people have uh worked out particularly after communism collapsed they've worked out that they can't can no longer say that they're communist it's a tough sell but the whole thing about um underlying marxist theory is that we need that society is bad and we need to overthrow it right okay so while these people are no longer saying we need to overthrow society because of capitalism they are taking a more subtle approach, but they still want to basically overthrow society. Sure. They, that's the fundamental difference between the right and the left. The right looks back at, into our past and is proud of our past and is supportive of incremental change. But we identify with the past and we like the past. Yeah. Whereas the left always say, and I think they're projecting their own internal unhappiness for whatever reason, <laughs> They want to say that everything that happened in the past was wrong yeah. and that the future will be glorious and we can have a glorious future by uh, having a lot of state control. Right, right. So then I guess you make the point in, in the book, um, and I, I just want to get the actual page, is that um, first chapter of the book is the dominant uh, political party. Now, yes. I guess in... For my generation, people growing up with me, it's been kind of more split and, and even from the point at which you could really identify p- with politics. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you had this, like the long period of Howard, mm-hmm. but then after that, it's kind of been relatively chop and change. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not always been the case. No. Um, so the nation has held 45 federal elections. Labor has won 14. Um, that is a pretty commanding lead on any scoreboard as you will attest what do you think is the driving factor what about it is fundamentally appealing the liberal party is fundamentally appealing to 
Australians because that's across all that's a several generations oh, yes. which have grown up yes yeah no the Liberal Party has dominated Australian political history but it's important to note uh, for the viewers that when we talk about the Liberal Party most people think we're talking about an organisation that started in 1944 well that is not true what Robert Menzies did in 1944 was he rebadged the old party which was called the United Australia Party and there's been a consistent organisation since about 1909 when the Progressive Party and the Free Trade Party, who had been at each other's throats but both were opposed to socialism and therefore the Labor Party, merged. We, it's been the same old party ever since. So um, <clears throat> I think what happens is uh, you only need to live through one or two Labor governments and they, with, with only two exceptions, they've always been chaotic. So when people, uh, you know, people, often young people will get tricked by the rhetoric of the left, which sounds like they're about more human compassion. But then when they actually live through their governments and they see the outcome of their policies, um, well, they turn off them. So the only two, every Labor government has been chaotic. And we never, you know, we never get taught this in school, but it's true. And the only two exceptions was uh, the Curtin-Chifley government in the 1940s, which was a Labor government, which did a good job, I suppose, in helping us win the war. Um, and, but they were also, look, at the, in terms of they were, they were a unified government and they, were a, you know, they weren't at each other's throats. Then we also had the Bob Hawke and Paul Keating sure. governments. Now, they were at each other's throats for a little while when Keating over, uh, overthrew Hawke. But... The thing is, it was you know, generally regarded to look back as a very successful government because they you know, followed the Liberal Party on economic that, Yeah, that's what that's uh, my understanding of it. Is even uh, that government there undertook a series of kind of microeconomic reforms, cutting regulation, um, making it easier for business, which it almost would you would call it like a liberal light. Oh yes, policy oh, even better. I mean, look, we should be so grateful. What happened was is after World War II, it, it appeared in the democratic world as though socialism was inevitable. And we would have left-wing governments come in and bring in more socialism, and then we'd have a conservative government which wouldn't reverse the socialism. But they, they wouldn't add to it, but they just, it would just pause it. And then Margaret Thatcher came along in 1979. And she said, no, 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 we are going to reverse this creeping socialism because it's, it's making our society unwell. So she's the one that really took, had their guts to, to stand up and say, we're going to reverse it, and she did. And a year after she got elected, Ronald Reagan got elected in America with the same agenda. And those two countries, with those two great leaders, uh, when they brought in these reforms, it caused a recession. Because it's like when you're sick, you gotta take the medicine. The medicine doesn't taste good, but it's gonna make you better in the longer term. So by the time Bob Hawke and Paul Keating got elected in 1983, and they really didn't have much of an agenda when they campaigned, except for Bob's likeable personality, they'd had, they'd had the luxury of four years of seeing Thatcherism work and yeah. Reaganism work. So all they did was they ripped up nine decades of Labor Party policy, which they had, to their credit, they'd always been very honest. You read Gough Whitlam's speeches in the late 60s and 70s, He's saying, vote for me, and I'm going to bring in a democratic socialist platform. Okay, that's, that's what, but then Hawke came along, he said, you know what we're going to do? 
we're going to copy Margaret Thatcher. We won't say that we're copying Margaret Thatcher, but we're going to copy sure. Margaret Thatcher. Paul Keating, and, and, and then one of the persons who deserves a lot of the credit for that is John Howard, as a uh, one of the opposition's uh, and a leader at the time and throughout the 80s, and, uh, but not always. He was saying to the Liberal Party, saying, you know what we have to do? We have to support these reforms through the Senate and not yeah. make it controversial. It's going to be bad for us politically, but good for the country. And John Howard deserves a lot of credit for that. So, um, <clears throat> the Keating used to be so Thatcherite. When they used to come into the cabinet, they always the ministers had to explain how they had found ways to cut spending since they at last had a cabinet meeting. Now, unlike every other cabinet I know of, the ministers come in and they're begging for more money <laughs> so they can go and build some vanity projects. So yeah. they, they have their name on it and say, oh, look what I opened. Yeah, I just spent $4 billion on this. Uh, but no, Keating was the opposite. He said, no, we're going we're gonna to cut spending. So look, he was, uh, it was a very good period of government. But putting Curtin and Chifley and Hawke and Keating aside, every other Labor government was actually just like the Rudd and Gillard government. Yeah. Chaotic and bad policies. So we've, I guess you've seen um, kind of, besides obviously the, the Chifley and the Hawke-Keating, um, I guess kind of the two, what should be diametrically kind of opposed positions. One is the expansion of the state mm -hmm. and kind of the imposition of state controls upon the individual. Mm -hmm. And what should be on the other side, maximum individual liberty, um, incentivize enterprise, um, make the individual... Let him choose as much as he can as possibly choose within reason, right? And so that's kind of, I guess, what, what should be on both sides. Yes. Um, why is, is kind of the move uh, of the Liberal Party in recent years away from what should be on this side, which is maximum individual liberty, mm -hmm. towards more state control, uh, more state control of free enterprise? Is that... A direct symptom of the fact that factional power brokers and not the membership, not the party mm. as a whole, decide who is representing them. Well, uh, absolutely. So what's happened is there's two types of people who get who join the Liberal Party and get active in the Liberal Party. There are people who we'll call true believers, people who believe in policies and ideas. And you know, look, a small group of people are born. And, you know, for, for whatever reason, by about the age of eight to nine, they're sort of watching the news and they're asking mum and dad what's going on there. I'm interested in it. Sure. And sometimes people can grow up in political families and they're not interested in politics. And sometimes yeah. people can grow up in non-political families and they're very interested in it. It's just, it's just one of the ways the good Lord made us all, okay? So having a political interest is a good thing. Now, so the people that join the Liberal Party that are the true believers, which is probably 90% of the members, they're not joining the Liberal Party out of personal ambition. They're joining the Liberal Party out of their ambitious for the country. Sure. And they just want to sort of see free enterprise and good values promoted. Now, the other group of people that join the Liberal Party are people who just see it as a way for them to get into a position of, um, well power i suppose but it's really more about sort of personal gratification they get a kick out of it they get a kick out of the intrigue they get a kick out of walking around parliament house they don't really believe in anything and so these people they then go and call themselves liberal moderates now all that means is they're saying oh well i'm a liberal but i only moderately believe in it now they like to be able to say that because then they're never asked 
what they feel strongly about because they say, well, I'm actually just a moderate. I don't really believe in anything that strongly. They position themselves neatly. If that's the consensus policy position in the Liberal Party and that's the consensus policy position in the press gallery, the Liberal moderates position themselves neatly in the middle. So they can say, well, we're a Liberal, we're a Liberal. Um, <clears throat> but then they read enough, digest enough media just so they can have a few talking points about how to sound like a Liberal, but also to not upset the press, press gallery. That's what the Liberal moderate is. They really, look, they don't write books, they don't write opinion pieces, they've really got no, nothing much to say. So it's, not, it's unfair to call them left-wing Liberals and us and Conservatives right-wing Liberals because really they don't believe in anything. Sure. That's the key thing. Right. So I guess um, if, if we know that the party, the membership base, broadly identifies with kind of values of individual liberty, yes. um, then on the basis where we have a plebiscite or a far more democratic process for pre-selection... You won't even end up with this with a bunch of guys who identify as moderates. That's the idea. It, like true, we will end up with a high percentage of true liberals. Well, you will. But look, what will happen is when we have a democratic party structure in a seat like Wentworth, I expect and I hope that we would have someone who was a genuine, uh, let's call it small L liberal, but yeah. someone who really believes in, in those principles. Okay, sure. so this is an area which is affluent, but it's uh, fairly um, centrist on a, on a like lot of... Like socially progressive almost. Yes, yeah, so there probably will be a higher number of people in this area who vote Liberal but want Australia to become a republic. Right. Or vote Liberal and believe in global warming. Or uh, you know, they might have been very outspoken in favour of same-sex marriage uh, debate. Okay, so it's fine and it'll only be good for the party if we have a Liberal in Wentworth who is more progressive on those social sure. issues. Okay. Sure, But, <clears throat> what, well, we're not seeing that at the moment. We're just seeing, um, you know, the party dominated by people who just sort of... They really run it like a mafia. They want it... It's all a, it's a, it's a business for them. Sure. Sure. So it's not so much that there's kind of this idealistic person we want to come through in every seat. It's more kind of the idea that people should have a range of options yes. and should be able to choose for themselves who they wish to represent them. Well, look, no system's perfect, but democracy's proven itself to be pretty good. Sure. And there's no better alternative. So if we bring in this structure, are we going to occasionally have dud candidates? Yes, but we'll have less dud candidates than sure. we're having now. Sure. And I guess this uh, one of the themes that kind of runs through your book a little bit, I would say, oh, a fair, a fair amount, is the uh, wisdom of the crowd. Yes. So the idea that a group of people with varied experiences across a range of different aspects in, yes. in life and business and whatever, when kind of making a decision collectively, even though they pursue the, the decision in terms of their own thoughts and whatnot, but yes. when you kind of average it all out, yes. um, a group of people will be far better at deciding something than a single person or a very small kind of cabal almost of people. Well, yes, it's it, it's a, the wisdom of the crowd is something that goes back to Aristotle, you know, pretty smart guy, and uh, he that was his observation. He says. The larger the group of people with input into a decision, the more likely it's actually going to be the correct decision. 
And so, and he says, you know, so you can have a small group of specialists in a field, okay? Uh, now, sometimes they will sort of know too much and they won't have co a common sense instinct. But if we have a large group of people making a decision, then they very often get it right. And I guess you, you, you could almost look, I guess the, the election of Donald Trump would be a classic example of that where a whole bunch of media elites, um, the top brass of the mm. Democratic Party, but even across all the news networks, so all these people who were paid to be political correspondents, yes. experts in the field, had... I mean, we look at our own ABC. Mm. Uh, I mean, you couldn't find a person who said Donald Trump was even a chance, let alone mm. who was actually going to win. Mm. Um, do you think that what kind of happens is there becomes sort of an echo chamber in which kind of the popular opinion gets bounced across, bounced across to the point at which it becomes mm. unchallengeable mm. Um, whilst they are actually separated totally from kind of what the average punter wants? Well, look, I think what was, what was uh, in the lead up to the Trump election in 2016 is I think that the, the left-wing elite was so uh, horrified by him winning that they had the view that the more you tell people that he's going to win, and that the, they thought that people could be intimidated into voting for Trump. They were saying, you know, you're a racist, you're a sexist if you vote for Trump. They say that about pretty much every Republican, but they said it more about Trump sure. than usual. Um, now, the, um, <clears throat> the very interesting thing about the Trump election was is that the Americans have a pretty neat rule. There's really only been one exception for more than a century, and that is that a political party gets the White House for at least two terms. They don't have one term. The only exception was Jimmy Carter, who, who, was, who defeated a Republican in 1976 and then only four years later was defeated by a Republican. But every other time, Obama got two terms. George W. Bush got two terms. Bill Clinton got two terms. Uh, Reagan and Bush, well, they actually had three. Kennedy and uh, Johnson had two terms. Uh, Eisenhower had two terms. So, the, and, it, and it's actually the same in other English-speaking countries. So in Australia, at a federal, federal level, there's only been one... Uh, well, the last time we had a one-term government was 1931. So everybody else gets two terms. Julia Gillard had lots of difficulties. She got two terms. Malcolm Turnbull got re-elected. Um, Gough Whitlam got two terms. So... And it's almost the same in England. So the point is, is that people, I think that the quieter middle Australians out there and middle Americans, they think, let's give them another go. Unless they're really catastrophically bad sure. like Jimmy Carter was. And so with that in mind, um, you, you know, it, I think the biggest overlooked factor in the Trump election was that we, the Democrats had had their two terms. Sure. Yeah, and it's, that's, that's standard operating procedure. Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to go to Trump a little bit later. I just sure. want to kind of... That was just kind of the wisdom of the crowds, okay. I guess. Yes. Um, but what I would want is, I guess, uh, what comes across in the book is kind of... You have a not only like this is a common sense, um, logical progression, like mm -hmm. it kind of needs to happen, but it also seems like there's kind of an emotional imperative... You're emotionally invested in it, I guess. Maybe you identify with the values that traditionally come from the Liberal Party so strongly that you feel like it's not just like a, 
uh, a logical progression, but almost like an ethical moral obligation to yes. push through. Do you feel like um, that's the case? Well, look, I have this vision in my mind about how great the Liberal Party could truly be. And uh, I think it can be immensely better than it is. Mm. Um, and I think we've got all the ingredients. The, con- uh, the conservative movement in Australia is actually very strong. We've got terrific journalists on radio, print, TV, and world class. We've got terrific think tanks. We've Centre for Independent Studies, the Menzies Research Institute, the IPA. And, you know, we've got millions of people out there who identify with the Conservative movement. Now, the one missing piece of the jigsaw is the Liberal Party structure. And so this is why I'm thinking the most important reform that this country needs right now is political reform. Now, once we have political reform, we can then return to a more... um, pro-free enterprise agenda. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Um, what would... If you were kind of... We, we, we often see we kind of throughout the West, for whatever reason, um, there is a, a kind of pull, like a gravitational pull of young people towards the left and not just the left, the hard left, towards socialism. And not only that, it... For a lot of uh, young people, I guess, it, it almost seems unfathomable, like the idea that you could be like a traditional conservative. What would be your pitch to kind of the younger generation? I mean, there's reports, I, I've heard reports that the youngest generation coming through now is the most conservative since World War II. Right. I've heard that. Um, I, you know, I don't know how factual it is. It's, you know, it's been mm-hmm. passed around. But what would your pitch be to someone my age or just a little bit older or just a little bit younger to be a conservative? Okay, well, the first thing to bear in mind is that it's a, a, a worldwide historical phenomenon that young people vote for the left. Now, what happens with as they get older and they live more life and they meet good people in life, they meet bad people in life, they have a few ups and downs... By the time they get over 50, they're staunchly voting Liberal. Now, the most left-wing youth generation since World War II was the 1960s. Now, the left might seem like they're a bit out of control right now, and they are pretty out of control, but like they're not letting off bombs. And this is what was happening in the 1960s. Radical Marxist students were blowing up police stations. Sure. And there was lots of violence. And so things were... things are pretty bad right now, but we need to keep it in perspective. The left can get a lot further out of control than they... Then they, after they have... And in the 1920s, the communists were out of control in the United States as well. So it seems to happen about once every 50 years, they um, <clears throat> they have this sort of... They have a bit of a meltdown. They have a bit of a meltdown, that's right. So, um, but... <clears throat> what I would say to young people is this, in terms of you asked me for the pitch. Sure. Okay, so... Um, young people, let's say you're 18 and you're voting for the first time. Okay, now it was only 10 years ago, which is just yesterday, you were eight. You were a little child who knew nothing. And now when they get to 18, young people do have faster brains. They can learn things quicker. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but they obviously lack life experience and therefore wisdom. 
And so they can, they've got these faster brains than older people. And they become very uh, sure of their own opinions. But in fact, they should be much more humble and say, you know, I'm just starting out in life. I've got lots to learn. So another thing that the left will do is they can come up with these very flowery sounding words like about how we're going to save the environment and we're going to help poor people and we're going to help refugees. And young people who've got good hearts hear this and I think, well, of course I believe that. I want to do that. I want to do that. And they get tricked to support left-wing ideas because of these soothing words. Mm-hmm. But once, once people get older, they can see through these charlatans and they can say, okay, well, look, I know your rhetoric might sound nice, but in fact, if we follow through on your policies, there's actually going to be more human suffering. Do you think as well, um, it's kind of there is the inherent friction between individual responsibility and kind of the collective, it's not your fault, it's everyone else's fault, society's unfair, mm-hmm. um, and that the friction between these two ideas, which is kind of the fundamental basis of the right and the left. Yes. The left is that kind of we can separate people into groups mm. and whoever's on the top must necessarily be the oppressor and whoever's on the bottom must yep. by necessity be the oppressed. Yep. Um, that's a much easier thing for young people to swallow if they feel like they've had a tough run is the idea that mm. there's someone up above in the mm. ether, in the, you know, the stratosphere who's working hard against them rather than kind of the opposite position which is, I, I guess, quite daunting and almost frightening for some people where you say, look, stuff happens, but you're ultimately responsible for your own outcome. Do you think, um, number one, the idea of individual responsibility is kind of lost on young people, particularly these days, or has this always been the case? And do you think this is uh, amplified by, I guess, higher education and kind Mm. of the way that education is structured? It does disturb me. I remember growing up reading nursery, uh, like kids, little kids' stories, and a yeah. lot of those stories were about self-reliance sure. and hard work, and you know, you're going to have a few knocks in life, but get get yourself back up. And I've got a couple of young young children now, and I read these stories. It seems to um, that that message do, does seem to be absent from a yeah. lot of these current stories. Uh, which now I, I this is coming from the the long march through the institutions, sure. Where the former Marxists and the people uh, you know they who want to overthrow society they're now doing it in slow motion, but they're still doing it, and they want us to all feel like we're dependent. Well, the truth is the only societies that ever work is when there is robust free market capitalism. It's the only thing that's ever worked. The more capitalism a country has had, the more wealth its, its people have had. And the more socialism people have had, the more misery that they've had. It's as simple as that. Mm. Mm. It, it almost seems remarkable. Like I remember um, listening to uh, Friedrich Hayek, mm-hmm. who's, who's, he kind of um, gave this little spiel on why particularly intellectuals drift towards socialism mm-hmm. um, and it's something that Thomas Sowell as well has kind of echoed mm-hmm. is the idea that these intellectuals they produce ideas mm-hmm. right um, they don't have to buy and sell these ideas they don't have to pitch it so much you know mm-hmm. if, a, if a builder builds a bridge and the bridge falls down mm-hmm. he pays the consequences mm-hmm. but if an academic um, makes an outlandish remark about the detriments of capitalism mm-hmm. there's nothing 
There's mm. nothing kind of stopping him. There's no, uh, like, it's kind of all out there in the, mm. in the ether. It doesn't really have any tangible, mm. um, you can't hold on to it. You can't say that's declined in value, whatever. Mm. Um, where have the conservatives in universities gone? Where are they? Uh, or even education in general. Like, you go through high school and you look at the curriculum and you say, well, this is, anyone can see that it's moved towards the left. Now, I'm not here to say whether that's, good or bad mm, or whatever mm, mm. um but it's it's happening mm. look it could be you know i was interested in your comment earlier when you heard that this could be the most conservative youth generation since world war ii i'm quite open to that because young kids by the time they first leave school they do want to rebel against what they've been taught sure. and they've largely been taught by their teachers now they all know that they've been taught left-wing crap a lot of the time and so what they are doing is maybe they are rebelling against it. I mean, you know, I understand that high, high school kids these days learn a hell of a lot about Aboriginal history. Well, I'm pretty interested in Aboriginal prehistory as well. But I mean, I mean, I would have thought that kids at high school would have um, been better equipped for life if they sort of knew what happened with World War II or the Cold War. Uh, you know, these big things, or even, you know, the English Civil Wars, or the Romans, or mm. the Greeks. You know, these are all monumental things. And, yeah, you know, I remember at school, we used to get taught about Captain Cook and all the explorers uh, to Australia, and the kids don't get taught that anymore. But uh, <clears throat> it could be, it could, the left could be setting themselves up for a big problem here because maybe the kids will rebel against all this nonsense. I feel like that's what happens. I feel like there is kind of this natural push and pull right. kind of um, the, uh, I guess the youthful like resistance almost. People feel like, particularly young people feel like mm. um, they want to push back against kind of the strictures of the mm. society um, against their elders. And that's kind of a natural thing. Mm. And when kind of the older generation... Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, older and older, but it could just be the one above. Like, for instance, mm -hmm. this generation pushing against millennials or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you often see, like, I've I've noticed, for instance, that the funniest comedians, in my opinion, estimation, of the, uh, are the ones who are making fun of political correctness right. at the moment. Right. Um, you see, like, on the, on the internet, uh, the funniest memes and stuff like that are the mm. ones making fun of the people who you know, pretend that there's like 58 genders, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. Because what happens is when, I guess when there's this echo chamber of uh, that's, that's like people know that's crazy, but you can't mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. um, you can't say it's crazy, that it gets more and more crazy as it goes off. And the, and the kids go, well, I can see that that's ridiculous. The idea yeah. that there are 58 genders. Mm -hmm. um, so then like the, the, the funny thing is, is when the kids push back against it, point oh. out how ridiculous it is. Mm. Um, I mean, my brother's going to be 18. He's totally amongst and sees that all the time. Right. Like younger kids pushing back against this kind of ridiculous right. um, well, that's fringes. Um, it's promising, but I guess it is kind of natural as well. Well, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where all this uh, identity politics does end up. Um, it could just peter out. I mean, the left do, well, about once every 10 years, they get themselves all tied up in knots over a certain issue and then they just sort of, then they move on to another one. 
And what, whatever issue they have in mind at the time, it's always like the most apocalyptic, um, of, of, of apocalyptic importance. Yeah. Okay, so 10 years ago, it was all global warming. Sure. And then 10 years prior to that, it was all about in this country, all about saying sorry to Aborigines. It's just what the left, that's all that was in their brain. And then it was global warming. And, and now it's identity politics. And, uh, you know, they go through these fads. Do you think that's kind of a symptom of kind of... Uh, I've heard as well that uh, with the left, they, they tend to eat, eat themselves on the fringes because when you separate everyone into oppressed versus oppressor, everyone by nature is full of a 100 different identifying characteristics, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, people of different races and different genders, when you try and fit them into the, into the hierarchy, there's going to be mm. some kind of overlap mm. where one ends up being on the bottom of one but on mm. the top of the other, mm. right? So then you have what happens is on the fringes when you're kind of trying to split people up as they do mm. uh, into group A, B and C. There's people with a, a kind of um, a mixing of characteristics amongst the three groups. So when they try and confront each other and say, mm-hmm. well, I'm out of all of us, I'm the most oppressed. Then someone says, well, you can't be more oppressed than I am because I've got these, mm-hmm. I fit into this box. And mm-hmm. so it kind of eats itself mm-hmm. more than it actually kind of fizzles out. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, you see among uh, the people who say that there are more than two genders and then you have kind of the hardcore feminists. The hardcore feminists are saying, well, you can't be a woman. Mm-hmm. You can't just pick and choose you're a woman. I'm a woman. Um, I'm oppressed. You can't choose to kind of identify with what my life experience is. Mm. Um, and so you have kind of that friction between you don't just get to choose. Because, you know, if I wanted to, I, I wouldn't want to be a, identify as a woman because mm. then I wouldn't have all this discrimination against me, whatever. Um, but maybe it kind of eats itself as well. Well, it does eat itself. It reminds me of the... The French Revolution, which is a very long and complex story. Okay, I recently sat through a podcast on it. Now it's 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 there's uh, a hell of a lot of detail in that revolution. But for the purpose of this conversation, the interesting thing was it's exactly what you say. They eat themselves. Okay, so there would be one group would get behind, yeah, you know, would get political power, and they'd have to go and wipe out, you know, the people who previously had the power, and then it would just keep. Yeah, there'd always be another group who's, who's now become the evil one and who now need to be oppressed. Mm. And so the guy that cut off the most amount of people's heads was Robespierre. Well, he ended up getting his own head cut off. Okay, so like they, uh, this is what the lefties will do, you know, because you're right. I mean, if, if you're going to segment people, then there's going to be conflict. Well, the better way of looking at it is just treat everybody like a an awesome individual. Mm. Just, um, you know, and... Uh, just be great and have a sense of gratitude that you're actually alive because, you know, that's it's better than, you know, you're either alive or you're dead. And you should, there should always be, when you've got life, say, well, you know, I'm pretty happy about this situation. And I think that's at the heart of what's in a conservative's soul. Sure. I think the lefties, so often, <clears throat> I'm not talking about young lefties, but people who are still left-wing by the age of 40 or 50, they are so often miserable people. Now, there, of course, there's exceptions, but they, I think that they're projecting their own unhappiness onto the rest of the world, and they see the world through this misery prism, and they want others to see the world through the misery prism as well. Sure. I think um, if you listen to some psychologists, um, what 
and even kind of um, neuroscientists, they what they say is that there is actually a release of adrenaline and serotonin and those all those feel good chemicals when you reach a goal, okay. right? Um, so when you kind of say the individual is responsible for his own success or failures or whatever, mm-hmm. when an individual, if the person believes that I'm an individual rather than part of the collective and I'm responsible for my own outcomes, mm-hmm. potentially it could be that by the individual who reaches his own goals, he's constantly striving to be better, number one, but also mm. to be happier, mm. number two. Mm. And not only that, when if you take the opposite, which is the idea that I can't be responsible for anything, I'm kind of necessarily oppressed or whatever, um, there is no goal setting because it's kind of this nihilistic fatalism which overcomes mm. these people, which says, well, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm oppressed anyway. Mm. Um, I can't ever achieve anything. Um, I can't move forward. Mm. I mean, that must necessarily be like the most miserable, yes. awful state of affairs that you could imagine, which is exactly kind of the strictures that define yeah. the far left. And it's also uh, unnatural, there, this impulse. Sure. Because, it is, because we're all the product of four billion years of uh, reproduction. And, you know, all of our ancestors have survived and so you know we've got the survival instinct in us and so when they do want us to feel like we are uh incapable of achieving they it's naturally bringing about misery because it's not it's not what the human spirit is sure but i guess as well that's why um you take the idea that people are supposed to be competing against one another as well Mm. there is kind of this natural human particularly male instinct to compete against other males, to assert dominance, um, to show strength. And there is, I guess, there is some kind of uh, sense of self-fulfillment and gratitude when you do, when you win a competition, of course. Like, it's mm-hmm. difficult to replicate when you beat your peers at something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a natural thing. But when you say there is no hierarchy, uh, there is only two oppressed and oppressed, mm-hmm. uh, oppressor and oppressed, there is only... There is no first, second, third, fourth. There mm. is only a mixture of um, power and mm. the people who have not. Then you're also taking that away. The mm. idea that blokes particularly like to compete against each other. Mm. Um, and that, and so, for instance, now you have all these guys who are sitting around, they're depressed or unhappy. Um, but also, I guess competition is one of the ways in which you can express controlled aggression. Mm. Um but when you take that away from guys, they end up being bitter, uh, unhappy, mm. uh, but also can express extreme violence as well. Right, well, well that, that doesn't sound good at all. No, it sounds like an <laughs> awful state of affairs. Yes. Um, I know you're a massive uh, fan of US politics. I've only just started recently, I guess for about the past kind of two or three years, really started taking an interest. Okay. Um, I find it fascinating, um, particularly kind of the theatre of it. There is kind of an, a, an aspect of the drama and the tension, which is not, I wouldn't say, unique to the US, but it is, I would say, most manifest in US well, politics. Well, it's the biggest stage. It's the biggest. It's because, sure. because it's the biggest political stage. That's why there's so much drama on it. So the past week has been a big week mm. in US politics. Mm. Um, we've had the hearing of 
Judge Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. who was the nominee for the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had, in the same week that he was supposed to be uh, confirmed, I believe, we've had three, is it three or four separate accusations of sexual misconduct all dating back further than 30 years, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes. All within the same week. Yes. The week in which he's supposed to be confirmed. Yes. Right. Yes. Now, uh, there are some familiar characters playing a role. Michael Avenatti, mm-hmm. the lawyer for Stormy Daniels. Mm-hmm. Um, he's there. He's representing Swetnick. Okay, yes. I, I think so. Um, but for whatever reason, um, Judge Kavanaugh, who has lots of experience as a judge, mm-hmm. has found himself at the center of a number of allegations which look may potentially derail his nomination. Now what is what was your headline reaction okay. at the first allegation of sexual misconduct more than thirty five years ago? So it's important to put this process because it is a sure dramatic moment in American politics and uh, it's legal history as well. In the last <clears throat> roughly three decades, uh, the nine justices on the High Court have been fairly reliably split in this matter. There's been four right-wingers, there's been four left-wingers, and there's been Justice Anthony Kennedy in the middle, who was the swing vote. And Justice Anthony Kennedy would usually vote with the right on economic issues and gun issues, and usually vote with the left on social issues, same-sex marriage, abortion, things like that. And this is the Supreme Court? This is the Supreme Court. And what, what's, the purpose, what's the purpose of the Supreme Court? Well, it's, like, well, it's the highest, uh, highest court in the land, and really in the whole world. And where, well, when they have a contentious law or a contentious legal case... When the Supreme Court gives a ruling, it's final. It's final because it's final. There's no further appeal sure. after the Supreme Court has spoken. So the Supreme Court has always been political since George Washington, but it's um, it's very political now. But but the key thing is Justice Kennedy has been the swing vote. Justice Kennedy has resigned, and that's why they need to find a replacement. So the Constitution says that the President uh, appoints someone to the Supreme Court, but a majority of the Senate has to uh, uh, approve them or ratify them. So this person, Brett Kavanaugh, that they've put up, he will make the Supreme Court not four, four versus four with one swing in the middle. It'll make it pretty solid right. Five, four. Pretty solid 5-4. Okay. Now, then the other thing is, is that there's a very old justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's on the Supreme Court, who's one of the most reliable left-wing votes. Well, she's very, very old and frail, and the left is furious at her for not retiring under Obama, because then Obama could have appointed her replacement. Sure. She is... It's hard Because it is a lifetime appointment, is it not? 
It is, unlike our Australian constitution, which I think our actual constitution says you have to retire as, as the High Court Justice. I think it's 70 or 75. But the United States, yes, you You can. get to go till you cark it or you resign. That is correct. That's okay. Right. So they normally try to resign when you've got a favourable president, so sure. your replacement. So when a, a President Obama had two Supreme Court nominees to make, and they got through without any difficulty, okay, uh, because they were replacing a lefty with a lefty. Yeah. Okay, but also the right wing, the conservatives don't go as crazy as, as the left does. But the reason why Justice Kavanaugh has been having, you know, Molotov cocktails thrown at him every 15 minutes here is because... The left is just fanatically determined to do everything they can to stop the court going five to four. Sure. That's the background. So this Brett Kavanaugh has stepped into the firing line and this is just the beginning. They will come up with anything until they break this guy. And um, what they're hoping is, is that the Supreme Court won't make its decision before the midterm elections. And then they're hoping that the Democrats get control of the Senate, which they may well do. Feels as though the Republicans will still retain a majority, but no, it's very much in the balance. So then they're hoping, okay, this uh, this replace this new justice is going to have to be approved by a Democrat Senate. That's what they're hoping for. Yeah. And they'll they'll probably kibosh that. They'll what? Sorry. They'll kibosh it and get rid of it. Like, will they make? Make sure that he's he's not going to be. Oh preferred. well, yeah. Well, they would say there's no way on, on earth that, yeah. that you're going to get through Brett Kavanaugh. So then they would say to President Trump, "Okay, you re- you recommended this guy Kavanaugh. We've said get lost. So send us someone else." Now sure. then, Trump would then be forced to send somebody to them who is acceptable to him, but also acceptable to the Democrats. So look, the um, Look, I'm, I, I, I love the Republican Party in the United States, okay, but no party is perfect. Now, they, uh, I believe, did do... They, they helped lay the, um, the, the... They helped sort of sow the seeds of bad blood here. Because what happened in the last year of Obama's term, with about eight months to go, a right-wing judge, Justice Antonin Scalia, suddenly died. And Obama was the president. And, but the Republicans had control of the Senate. So what they, so Obama put up this guy who was pretty favourable to the Republicans. He was a Democrat, but he was not a hardcore partisan Democrat. And the Republicans said, we're not going to vote on it. We're going to wait till after the presidential election. Now, that, um, <clears throat> that was just sort of, that was like, straining the fabric of the Constitution. I would like it to get back to the situation with the Supreme Court, which is what it was up until quite recently. Whereas to get approved by the Senate, you need 60% support. So that means you can't put up someone who is like really fiercely conservative or really fiercely left-wing because they've got to get bipartisan support. So that would be a better system than... That what's happening now sure. is, and it's. Do you think in the long term it it's it's healthier for the United States? And I guess everyone else who's dependent on it. This is kind of uh, what happens now is a more short term gain for longer term. Well, look when, when when you stretch the Constitution for political gain, what it does is 
it fuels the internal divisions in the country, which is not good. <coughs> so um, I believe America is a similar situation to where the Roman Republic was from after they, by about say 140 BC, the Romans had taken full control, not just of the Italian peninsula, but pretty much the whole Mediterranean. <coughs> and they were like all supreme. And, and it was an extraordinary accomplishment. I mean, it took them about three centuries just to take over the Roman peninsula. And then they took over North Africa and Spain and Greece and Asia Minor and pretty much Egypt as well, not officially. But anyway, my point is, once they had supreme political military power and economic power, political power they then turned on themselves the Romans and that was really what brought the Republic down and they had massive internal divisions and it resulted in like a hell of a lot of blood being shed on the streets of Rome with these big purges and and it went on for went on for you know a good century you know until the Republic was no more and it became a under the Emperor so people sometimes say, it's a very silly thing to say, that America is like Rome and Rome fell and America is on the verge of falling. Well, that's complete crap. Rome was around for well over a thousand years. And uh, if America, you're going to compare America to Rome, there are a lot of parallels. America is still in its infancy. It's really what it was like at about 148 BC, where they, they've got all supremacy, but now they are turning it on themselves. But what the Romans did... The, the ones that helped sort of shred the old republic is that they were kept pushing the rules that had been around for centuries. These gentlemanly agreements about how to keep the internal peace and people started, people started violating that. And, you know, it's... I, I, no one's getting killed in America over political conflict, um, but I think there are some parallels there. It is um, obviously you have a, a Republican base, which would obviously prefer someone who is more favourable to their cause, um, someone who's socially conservative. But from what you're saying, it seems like the middle ground may be the one that prevents further carnage and damage in the longer term. Um, but would you would you rely on the Democrats? So would you have to amend the Constitution to make it sixty percent requirement? In, in, in um, the look, look, I it would uh, look. I don't know the exact details, but I feel like it just happened in the last ten years. And I think it was. I think the Democrat, both the Democrats and Republicans, are have been playing around with the rules for um, partisan gain. I don't think it's a constitutional requirement. I right. think the Senate itself could vote for it. Okay. Okay. Um, do you do you believe he'll be confirmed, Kavanaugh? Uh, I saw a poll on the way over, fairly reliable sounding poll. It said forty percent of Americans believe Kavanaugh is guilty of what he's accused of. 30% think he's innocent and 30% are undecided. Okay. Um, 
Look, and when I last saw a betting market that said it's more likely he will be confirmed than not confirmed. There's three Republicans who may not vote for him. They'll be under enormous pressure. Um, look, we're not... Well, this they've now got an FBI investigation and that's going to take a week. So we'll see what happens there. Sure. That, could, that, that in, investigation could easily come back and saying, look, there's no ground for criminal charges here. We don't have any evidence. What is what is the FBI? Because I understand it's not it's not a federal crime. Okay, the FBI normally doesn't have jurisdiction over uh, a what would be a state crime, yep, essentially yep. governed by state rules. I mean, it felt like the request by Ford for an FBI investigation was a deliberate delaying tactic, mm. considering the fact that it's outside the FBI's jurisdiction. That would be like mm. me asking the AFP to investigate a someone who'd scratched my car. Or something like that. Um, now, it also smacks a little bit of the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas um, yes. nomination. Um, why? Well, uh, uh, let's just say that in the next week the FBI comes up with nothing, mm-hmm. right? Which I think which could yeah. be. Seems quite likely. Because, Seems I quite mean, likely. You know, look, she's a very credible witness, but I mean, there really is there is no legal. She's got no corroborating evidence. No. So no. you know, the people that she said were at the party, all of them have said that they weren't at the party. Sure. Um, and look, he Judge Justice Ka- um, uh, Kavanaugh, he's kept a very accurate daily diary uh, for his whole life, including this period. Yeah. And I don't think he was even in the town he was accused of where this occurred. But, look, it is a bit mysterious because I watched her testimony live the other night and I thought to myself, you know what, she doesn't look like she's lying to me. That's what Trump said. Trump said it was compelling. Um, Yeah. Well, but still, I mean, look, compelling is still not evidence. Well, it's yeah. So, um, like, that's the burden of proof is not to be be shown to be compelling. Yeah. It's beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah. and with no corroborating evidence, it's difficult to... Does this set a dangerous precedent, though? Um, a, a character assassination of this magnitude, on this scale, for a Supreme Court nominee, now, regardless of whether you think he shouldn't kind of be as conservative or as progressive, does this not set a dangerous precedent that if there is no... That if the Republicans roll over on this mm-hmm. and they say, all right, fair enough, okay, mm. that... It's it, it's a forfeit in terms of uh, ideals and virtues well, almost. Well, in my lifetime, there's been three really intense um, Supreme Court uh, nomination hearings. There was a guy called Robert Bork in the late 1980s who was a complete legal genius. And they just... Um, they just destroyed him in these Senate confirmation hearings and he didn't get supported by the Senate in the end. They were criticising him for being... I don't think it was personal misbehaviour. It was... They were just saying he was a legal... I think they were saying he was like extreme right or something. But anyway, the term balked, because his name was Robert Bork, to be balked means... It's not a term we use in Australia, but in America it means sort of, um, you know, just non-stop harassment and intimidation until they get out. Then there was, uh, yes, Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. Well, he got did get confirmed, mm. uh, but that was still very bitter. 
and now we've got this one. Now the thing that all those three uh, uh, nominations have got in common is that they were all appointed by a Republican president and it was the left that went completely hysterical. And it's happening again, it's happening again now. I can't think of a time when, when President Obama put up his two nominees for the Supreme Court, lots of Republicans voted for them. Okay, so um, um, it's, it's, it's the, the left are the ones that go the most hysterical, who don't ex- uh, play by, who don't, won't accept uh, the outcome. Sure. And want to, you know, bring in personal attacks. Um, and, you know, this is, this is part, part, this is, reflects their nature about their, you know, if they can't have power fairly, they'll just sort of try and take it over. Well, I guess they wish to just overthrow the whole thing. They'd rather turn the whole table over than try and um, negotiate a better outcome. Yes. They they want to see the the thing burn. Almost like the Joker in Batman, Heath Ledger. Okay. All time. Um, Now, just... I wanted to ask you... um, Coming back to your book a little bit, we've had, obviously, we've had ScoMo elevated to the highest position in the land. Um, we've had uh, Frydenberg as his deputy, not who I would have picked, but as if you listen to the second podcast, not who I would have picked, but that's just, you just got to roll with the punches, I guess, in this state of affairs. Um not many people back the Libs as almost having any chance at the next election. Now, you follow it closer than most. You've written the guide to how to get back to the promised land. <laughs> um, first question, of all the possible candidates who were in the party room at the time, so of all the available MPs, who had the best chance of winning the election? Uh, well, look, I believe th- that well, under all the circumstances, I believe that was clearly uh, Malcolm Turnbull. Now, most conservatives in the party... Really? Yeah, well, I believe Malcolm Turnbull was going to quite easily win the next election. I mean, the polls had... Na- A year ago, the polls were typically 54 Labor, 46 Liberal. Sure. Now, up until the, the time they deposed him, it just kept getting narrower and narrower. So they were consistently 51-49. Yeah. Now that is a government. If the incumbent is 49, six to nine months out from an election, that incumbent is going to win the election. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the when, when a government is on, its tra- on track to lose, like Julia Gillard was and John Howard was in 2007, the polls six to nine months out are like, 60% for the opposition to 40. Right. Okay, massive... Now, even then, it still narrows on election day. Yeah. But, you know, it's massive disconnect. Malcolm Turnbull, who, I'm, you know, very disappointed with his policy direction, okay? Sure. And, you know, a big part of me was happy to see him go. Okay, but... Look, just like Tony Abbott was on track to win in 2016 before he got deposed... Just like we were saying before, <laughs> incumbent governments tend to get re-elected. Sure. Particularly first-term ones. I believe Malcolm Turnbull was on track to win the election. Now, um, <clears throat> but with Malcolm out of the race, um, well, look, uh, look, Tony Abbott's only ever had two 
opportunities to contest a federal election. And on both occasions, he has overperformed. So I know that he often doesn't go that good in polling, but in the actual poll that really counts, like called a federal election, Tony does well. In 2010, he almost knocked off a first-term government. First time it would have happened since 1931. Yeah. In fact, he really won, did win that election because we had Oakshot and Windsor representing two formerly National Party heartland seats. <coughs> and their voters understood, understandably assumed that, that, yes, they'll vote for an independent, but because both of these guys had been National Party members... That they would... That they, in a themselves. hung parliament, they would vote with the, with the coalition. They, sure. So... Um, so really, Tony Abbott did win in 2010, and he had a big thumping win in 2013 against Kevin Rudd. So, um, uh, but look, in terms of the next election, the betting markets say there's about an 80% chance Labor will win. Uh, I'm starting to think that Morrison is going to win the election. And that's because, look, he comes across as competent he ain't no margaret thatcher where he's driving a principled conservative agenda because i don't think he really believes in it i don't think scott morrison has ever written an opinion piece for any media outlet he's not a deep thinker but he's a very political person and i think that he comes across as reasonably likable pretty sort of like um a centrist type of a person and he comes across as reasonably competent. Now, when you contrast that with Bill Shorten, who I don't think does come across as that likable. Well, you could see that in, and I guess, the difference between the preferred Prime Minister polling and the two-party yes. preferred. Yes. That gap is, is quite substantial and has That's been right. since he's been uh, leader of the opposition. That's right. I, obviously, something is not resonating with the average Australian about Bill Shorten. Well, he keeps... Sorry. He Sorry. keeps campaigning from the hard left. Mm. I mean, the Labor Party this weekend, or sometime soon, is debating whether to have micro-quotas for Aboriginal people and gay people. Okay, well, I don't think that's going to get through the Labor Party conference, but even the fact that they're debating, that is turning off voters in middle Australia. And I, I think Shorten, when he first came into Parliament, he was... All the buzz about him was that he was going to be like... Just like Bob Hawke, he was a union leader who's mates with big business. And he's a big right-wing Labor guy. And that was the, all the buzz around Short when he first came along, jumped, uh, burst onto the scene. But since Jeremy Corbyn's surprisingly strong result in the 2016 British general election, when Corbyn was given no hope but actually performed very well in terms of the amount of seats he won, I think Shorten just seems to have said, let's be like Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Let's be really left-wing on everything. And I'm thinking, mate, you've got to try and win a federal election here. Shouldn't, be, shouldn't you be trying to govern from the centre? Yeah. I don't understand what his tactics are. Because I don't believe he's sincere about it because he's always been right-wing Labour. And now he's pretending like he's left-wing Labour. And Anthony Albanese has always been left-wing Labour. And he recently got in trouble for giving a speech recently. It was too pro-business okay so um it's all a bit scrambled at the moment is this is this kind of so we've got we've got a couple of situations there you've just named them where you've got guys who it appears are campaigning for positions in which they don't actually believe right Mm -hmm. is this and even i've seen it you can see it on on the 
on the right as well. You saw with Malcolm Turnbull, who was a member, I believe, of the, of the Communist Party or something like that, wasn't he? When he was um, the early 70s, wasn't it? Or No, I think, no? His, I think the, someone in his family may have. I don't think that was Malcolm. You don't think that was Malcolm? Not a member of the Communist Party. Okay, no. well... I remember, I don't, I don't know where I heard it, but I remember hearing something about him being aligned with the communists. Anyway. Well, if you go to, there's a website, stopturnbull.com. Okay, and that is, I don't know who put that together, but someone has done an enormous amount of research on Malcolm Turnbull. So if there's any evidence, it will be in that website. Okay. Well, I, that could have been fake news from my part. Um, very easily, but I'm glad we got the fact checker here. Um, but... To the larger point, you saw Malcolm Turnbull govern almost from the centre, closer to the left. Um, if anything, mm-hmm. is this again just the standard? What happens when um, people are pre-selected not on what's appealing to the mass membership, but but to what's kind of cool and hip and trendy in the seat of Wentworth? Well, look, I think Malcolm had the potential to be a great prime minister of the left in this country. He should have joined. The Labor Party. Yeah. He wanted to join the Labor Party, and he went to you know their top people: Bob Hawke, Graham Richardson, Stephen Loosley. All these people who are very, say exactly the same thing that on multiple occasions he tried to join the Labor Party, and I believe they are hundred percent telling the truth. And Malcolm should have had the guts when they when these party grandees told him no, you shouldn't join the Labor Party. He should have said, "Well, get stuffed." I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to I'm going to bulldoze through here because I. And a man of the left, which he clearly is. Mm. Now, he then thought, okay, well, if Labor won't let me in, I'll just bulldoze my way through this Liberal Party, which has much weaker internal structures, and you know, I, I, I'll be able to get away with what I want there. Yeah. He should have persisted with the left. He should have persisted with the Labor Party. He could have become a... He could have been Prime Minister for 10 years as a pro-business Labor man. Mm. It could have been a good combination, particularly for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can see that. I can see that's what it felt like. That, uh, that, that's what it felt like. There was never a point when I was watching it anyway where he got up and I was like, that is the man who I can see is an actual representative of the party in which I would vote for. Yeah. Right? It would, there'd seem to be that kind of natural disconnect. Anyways, um, on this show, we often like to have give the... Well, Dugs and I gave each other an opportunity to rant about whatever topic, for, you know, 60 seconds or whatever it is. Is there anything you, you've you seen, you want to let off your chest, you feel like needs to be heard? doesn't even have to be related to this. This could be the, could be the furthest thing. It could be you be ripping on the publisher. We don't really care. It could be anything. Is there <laughs> anything in which, like, could be the NRL grand final, could be the AFL. Is there anything in which you thought, that's ridiculous, um... God, I wish I had a platform to have a rant about this. Well, I would just really like to rant about uh, the little book, Make yeah. the Liberal Party Great Again. Um, I'm hoping the viewers can go to the website, maketheliberalpartygreatagain.com.au. Mm. There's an about page there which spells out how it's about, and there's an opportunity there to uh, order a copy of the book, which I hope you do, and I hope you read it. And we're hoping to have a number of launches across Australia to... Keep getting the message out there. A Michelle Obama type tour book launch. Have you read about this? Have you heard about Michelle Obama? It's going to be bigger than Madonna's. She's going to be packing out. She's doing like more than 40 tightly packed out venues for her new book. Tickets coming to Australia? 
Oh, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a Madonna style tour. That's what I read. Anyway, it's going to be bigger than Ben Hur. Okay. Uh, for Michelle Obama. Um, you've given a shout out to Margaret Thatcher, Menzies, and Reagan. Um, we also do a shout out, just a quick shout out. If there's anyone current, past, that you think people need to look up or, you know, has kind of been lost in the the books of history. Um, okay. Well, I'll tell you who the greatest prime minister in Australian history is. Mm. And that's, um, well, look, it's probably Menzies, but it's it could be, it's Menzies or Joe Lyons. Joe Lyons won the biggest election victory in Australian history. He got almost 60% of the vote in 1931. He had been the Labor Premier of Tasmania. He then came into the Labor government. Labor got elected in 1929 under James Scullin. And Scullin invited Lyons to be his treasurer. And Labor had been out of power for about 15 years. So no one in this Labor government had served in a cabinet before or been a minister, except for Lyons because he'd been a Premier of Tasmania. And then poor old James Scullin, who I think was a pretty decent guy, uh, <clears throat> he's got this new government, he's running the great country Australia, and about a week after he gets sworn in, the Wall Street crashes, which triggered the Depression in 1929. Yeah. And so the Scullin government just had no idea how to run a government, <laughs> yeah. and they had a massive crisis on their hands, economic crisis. And there was you know, extreme bitterness and division within that Labor government. And Joe Lyons defected to the conservative side of politics. The Labor treasurer defected and became the leader of the opposition. Is that the only time that's happened? No, it happened to the Labor Party in 1916 as well. In fact, the, the Labor Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, he defected to the conservatives. A sitting Prime Minister? Sitting Prime Minister, yes, that's right, yes. So it's happened twice yeah. in the Labor Party. So, Joe Lyons, Australia, when the Great Depression started around the world, Australia was one of the worst Western countries in terms of the effect it was having. And then Joe Lyons came in and won a massive thumping victory. Remember we mentioned before that first-term governments get re-elected, and I said, well, mm. since 1931. Well, that Labor governor, Scullin, did not get re-elected. Joe Lyons got about almost 60% of the vote, and then he won another two elections pretty comfortably. And, but when we came out of the Great Depression, Australia was in a, a, one of the strongest positions economically of all the other Western countries. So we went into it in a very weak way. We came out of it in a very strong way. And it was because Joe Lyons was anti-socialism and was just into sound fiscal policy. Sounds boring, but that's what helped really help lay the foundations for a, a great Australia today. Well, there we go. Mr. Lyons. Uh, but not someone you would hear about. Uh, well, okay, is... you never hear about Joe Lyons. Liberals never talk about him because he ended up having a massive fight with Menzies and Lyons was in the right. Right. And in fact, in the middle, because Menzies wanted, wanted to become the Prime Minister, wanted to knock him off through the party room. And then in the middle of that party room war, Joe Lyons has a heart attack and dies. Okay, so Menzies then became Prime Minister because of Joe Lyons' heart attack. But Joe Lyons and Robert Menzies, Menzies was the one that got Lyons to defect he was the one that would secretly meeting with him and say, hey, look, you can become the prime minister uh, if you defect and you can save the country as well, which is a pretty good thing to do. Yeah. But liberals forget about Joe Lyons because all of our focus is on Menzies 
And anything that happened before, liberals don't know anything about. Sure. Labor ignores Joe Lyons because he's a rat. Yeah. A Labor rat. Okay. So the two big political movements in this country ignore Joe Lyons. Yeah. But the fact is, he's arguably our greatest prime minister. Wow. Well, that is certainly a shout out. And um, I would hope that, you know, people listen to this, become more interested, I guess, in the history of the... the um, the Liberal Party, but I guess the Australian mm. political system in general, particularly yeah. since 1901. Um, but more specifically, actually understand, I guess, kind of the importance, because everyone feels the consequences of, of policies that are misdirected and not aimed at the at the members, but more for a small cabal mm-hmm. of uh, self-interested uh, government, well, I guess, government employees, I guess that's what you call MPs, really. Mm-hmm. Um, we, pay the, we pay the price both in terms of bad policy as well as their salary. Um, so if there's any possible way in which we can improve the outcomes for every Australian, then I think that should almost always, will definitely be listened to. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely an imperative thing. I have read the book. Um, Good, thank super you. easy read, I would say. Good. Really easy read. Doesn't I, I read it in about five or six hours, maybe. Oh, good. It's... Um, not not like dense or wordy or flowery is facts and um, basic common sense, which I think Good. is lacking. Um, oh, I'm very pleased. So I will give. Uh, want to thank Johnny Ruddick for coming on the podcast. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. No, no worries at all. Um, I don't really have anything to plug besides our sponsor. As always, um, I would like to give a massive thanks to um, My Style Suits. Uh, Started by two boys in Parramatta, aiming to give young people uh, a suit for a fraction of the price they normally pay for rentals. One to two business days delivery. Um, unbelievable quality. I can't speak more on the quality. It's unbelievable. You get a wool, 100% wool or the wool polyester blend. Um, two weeks rental for $100 or $80 if you get the blend. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Great service. One to two business day delivery. Thank you to My Style Suits. And thank you to Johnny Ruddick. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you.